I hit it. It has been hit. I have also the hit record, record. button. Not any person. Oh, <laughs> or right. Object. I was also talking about <clears throat> the record button. I'm eating one more sugar snacky. Do it. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch. Bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to rule your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be there. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Do you have a lady to tell me about? Oh, wait. I guess we should introduce our podcast. This is Good Witches, <laughs> Bad Bitches. This is a podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Deanna. Thanks for righting my wrong, <laughs> correcting my error. I appreciate it. Anytime. Uh, yeah, we talk about ladies and, you know, also gender nonconforming people because really what's gender? In a real casual yep. way. And uh, Really what's gender? <laughs> really what is it? Um and yeah, we have fun and we hope you do too. That's it. Welcome. We love you. Welcome. We love you. Four years of this podcast and we are no less awkward of humans. Uh, um, it's yep. almost like this is just who we are. Uh, almost. Almost. Not at all, really, in real life. I'm super suave and smooth and great. Totally. And Me awesome. too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me just take a sip of my drink. <laughs> I'm actually really excited to talk about the person that I'm going to talk about today because she's been on my list for a long time. Hell yeah. And um, she had a lot more to to offer me, as most women do in this podcast, when I start researching them and I go, they're even cooler than I thought when I put them on this list. Yep. Um, my, I know that, that my feeling. My sources this week include uh, a piece from PBS.org that I could not find an author, um, a piece from SmithsonianMag.com by Alicia Alt. And uh, NPR.org, a piece by Susan Stamberg, and then just a little sprinkling of Wikipedia. Hell yeah. So Wikipedia. It's, you know, it's a good, it's a good, like, filler. It yep. usually has some information that others don't have if you want to include some stuff. And it's, it's a good Gotta love it. bullet point sort of list. But I want to talk to you today about Marian Anderson. That name is familiar. I'm sure it is. It was familiar to me, too, but I didn't really know anything about her at all. And I didn't know what what to be. Looking. So, OK, Marian Anderson was a singer. <laughs> and so okay. I wasn't sure, like, what to be looking for when I like her voice didn't immediately jump out at me. But now, well, OK, so here we go. Let's talk about the amazing Marian Anderson. Shall I'm we? ready. Yes. So uh, conductor Arturo Toscanini dubbed her a once in a hundred years talent and yet oh. music schools in her hometown of philadelphia would not entertain her as a student and she did not find true frame fame as with so many of her other contemporaries like josephine baker until she left jim crow america and went to europe of course yep Ugh. <sighs> <sighs> So, Marian Anderson was born in 1897 in South Philadelphia. Her mother was Annie Delilah Rucker, and she was a hardworking former school teacher. Um, prior to her marriage, Marian's mother was briefly a student at the Virginia Seminary and College in Lynchburg and had worked as a school teacher in Virginia. But because she didn't get a degree, 
She was unable to teach in Philadelphia because there was a law that applied only to black teachers, but not to white ones, that you had to have a degree in order to be a teacher. Whoa. Weird, right? <laughs> that um, is like, I mean, I I see why they did it because, like, they're racist. Um, but I had no idea that was a fucking law. Requirement like a for, weird... for black teachers, but not for white teachers. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, yeah. white teachers are just automatically smarter just by virtue of being white, so they don't need mm-hmm. to have degrees. Oh, boy. That seems to be the implication. Fun. Um, but so her mother earned her main income caring for small children, is what it says. I don't know if that means she was a nanny or ran a daycare or I don't know. Um, but she would, okay. ca- she would care for people's children. Uh, Marion's father was John Berkeley Anderson, and he delivered ice and coal through the city. Uh, she had spent her formative years in a neighborhood near the center of a uh, black intellectual and cultural hub. And it was a community that would eventually help her um, because she started singing in oh. church, as with a lot of singers, I think, even today. Um, mm-hmm. She was six years old and was encouraged by her aunt, who had noticed that she was talented. So told her that she should be singing in church. Um, she Aww. in church would deliver performances that inspired and impressed. She had two younger sisters who also possessed musical talent, but it was Marion who became the most famous successful singer. When she was 14, the choir master of her church moved her from the youth to the adult choir. She stunned the other members, not only with the strength and beauty of her voice, but also with her ability and this is insane, to sing any part of a hymn on demand, whether it was the soprano, alto, tenor, or bass Uh part that he needed. (laughs) Oh, my God. He could rely on Marion to provide it. She had an insane range. She was known as a contralto, which is a low alto singer, but she could also sing up really high. That's crazy. That is just crazy. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that, like, voices could do that. It's weird. Maybe that sounds stupid, but I didn't quite realize. Mm-hmm. Allegedly, she could. And I, I say allegedly as a stupid person because we have her voice on tape. <laughs> um, but so within a few years, she became a member of the People's Choir, which meant that she could take on solos and earn money. So it was like a professional choir. Um, oh, wow. The income, which was as much as $5 a show, which in the early 1900s is not nothing. Um, no. Was particularly important to her family after her father died after suffering a head injury on the job. Oh. And so at the age of 12, Marian Anderson became her family breadwinner. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Wait, so twelve. So she joined the adult choir at fourteen, but she That's what was it says. there. Was there's a lot of mixed up on the ages. Okay, okay, but but so basically, is like a teen and or preteen. She was her father singing died professionally. When she was twelve. I know that much. So the, the pressure became on her. Um, wow, and she was making money with singing. her singing mm-hmm. in the choir in the people's choir. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Um, Wow. Her her family moved in um, with her paternal grandparents, her father's parents. Her grandfather had been born a slave and was emancipated in the 1860s and then moved to South Philadelphia. 
um, he was the first of his family to relocate um, as part of like the big sort of migration out of the South. And when Marion moved into their home, she became really close with her grandfather, but he died a year after they moved in. Oh. Um, yeah, I... Uh, blow just, after blow. Yeah. It was, uh, I think, probably really fucking hard. Um, I can't even imagine. And to and have then the to pressure have... of being your family yeah. breadwinner as a kid, as a child. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... One piece said she couldn't have gone to high school without the financial support of her church. I'm not sure what the implications of like public schooling and private schooling and stuff at the time were. Oh, yeah. But I I guess I don't know how that works. I find that fascinating that she got a lot of financial support from her church community. Um, The congregation had so much faith in her, no pun intended, that they started what they called Marian Anderson's Future Fund. Oh, my God. Which paid for lessons with the city's leading voice instructors and helped support her performances. Um, She continued to give concerts while she attended the South Philadelphia High School for Girls. And her teacher in high school, Dr. Lucy Langdon Wilson... Uh, arranged for her to meet with a famed Italian voice master who lived and taught in Philadelphia. And his name was Giuseppe Baghetti. And he was one of the few teachers at the time, thank God, who didn't have a problem teaching black students. Um, Christ. Because mm-hmm. that was a common God. issue at the time. Um, <sighs> he remembers his first meeting of her as occurring, quote, At the end of a long, hard day, when I was weary of singing and singers, and when a tall, calm girl poured out deep river in the twilight and made me cry. Oh, that makes me want to (laughs) cry. Just hearing that. He was so moved. And he immediately was like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Be my student, please, for the love of God, be my student. Um, At that point, the, the art trumps anything else. And you just, you go where the voice takes you like Mm -hmm. you don't say no to somebody whose voice is like a miracle no matter what Mm -hmm. no matter who they are or where they come from though i guess you know he he seemed to not have issue in i didn't research his background but the fact that they knew at the outset like you should audition for this teacher because he doesn't have an issue teaching black students probably meant that he i mean he was italian he was european so he already sort of was a little more open-minded i would presume <laughs> um, yeah. And after she graduated high school, uh, she wanted to apply to the Philadelphia Music Academy, which is a very prestigious school. Um, but when she went in to go apply, you had to go pick up an application. She was told at the desk, at the door, quote, we don't take colored people. So. Cool. Yeah, great. <laughs> when um, she was 28 in 1925. Her teacher, Baghetti, encouraged her to enter a New York Philharmonic competition, which had over 300 contestants. Um, but the winner would make a solo appearance with the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra. And she auditioned Ooh. and she won. And so Uh-oh. that achievement <laughs> prompted Baghetti to uh, encourage her to go to Europe. Um, and she did. Uh, she went back oh, to good. the States uh, a I few times. I thought you times. were going to say, like, that she won and that they weren't going to let her. Nope. 
perform, and I was really concerned for a second. No, <laughs> this is thank not, God a, not a, not one of the blows in in the okay. career, as far as I know. Um, so she right. did go to Europe. She would come back to the states and she would perform some. In the States, she was able to win a fellowship from the Julius Rosenwald Fund, which was established by a wealthy Chicago philanthropist who gave millions of dollars all the time to black schools and black causes. And so she got $1,500. And with that money, she moved to Berlin in 1930 uh, Ah. to gain a deeper study of German and leader music, Lieder music. Um, (laughs) How's that spelled? L-I-E-D-E-R. Ah, yes. Did I pronounce it correctly, Lida? Yes. (laughs) And so she made her European debut five years later after training in Berlin at the Paris Opera House in 1935. And almost immediately, her fame exploded in Europe. It was called Marian Mania, basically. Um, And in particular, she was extra popular for some reason in Scandinavia. Um, okay. She soloed for King Gustav of Sweden and King Christian of Denmark, uh, adding fuel to the growing fire of desire for her performances. I think they saw her as, um, so they sort of fetishized her as exotic in a way, because she oh. was a trained classical singer and a black woman from Philadelphia. Yeah. And Scandinavia is all white people with blonde hair. and Yeah. 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 Especially <laughs> I mean, at that time. You know, I'm generalizing. But. <laughs> um but she she could superbly deliver Russian folk songs. She could sing classic German and French arias as well as oh. spirituals, like spiritual hymns. Um, so wow. she had a lot of range in her capability, not only in her voice, but also she could sing gospel music, spirituals, and she could sing opera. So In other languages. In other languages. Exactly. I feel like, yeah, if you have the ability, especially at 12 or 14 years old, to just like bust out music in any range then you probably also have a gift for language i mean i'm making an assumption but that stands to reason to me you would think for some reason you would i don't know um so people flocked to see her um and she became like wildly famous in europe um while she was in scandinavia she met a finnish pianist named kosti vehanen vanen he became her regular accompanist and her vocal coach for many years. And then she met composer Jean Sibelius through her accompanist after he heard her in a concert in Helsinki. And he was so moved by her performance. And he invited both of them to his home, asked his wife to bring champagne in place of traditional coffee. He was so stoked he wanted to drink champagne. Ah. <laughs> um, he, I like that detail. Sibelius complimented Marion on her performance. He said that he felt she had been able to penetrate the Nordic soul. Oh, my goodness. That is such a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> like anybody saying that you've penetrated the soul of this. Of their of culture. My culture. That is, you're not native to. Yeah. I, I mean, if that's somebody told an astounding me that, compliment. I would be yeah. like, oh, thank you. Um, yeah. So they I'd be speechless. obviously became quick friends, um, mm-hmm. which further blossomed into a professional partnership. And for many years, he would alter songs, compose songs for her. And he dedicated a song called Solitude to her. Um, yeah. Aww. There was even a studio in, in Copenhagen that used her face 
taken with a camera that could capture 48 photographs on one negative as a marketing vehicle, plastering many images of her face over the front and back of its advertising brochures. That's how famous she was. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. But naturally, in the 1930s, the rise of Nazism began casting a shadow over her bookings in Europe. Um, Oh, God. But she did get to perform in 1935 at the Salzburg Festival in Austria. Um, She was offered opera roles by several European houses, but she didn't really feel comfortable because she didn't have acting experience. She just liked to sing. So she declined all of the offers. Even opera training is different, right, than than regular singing. So, I mean, to be offered opera roles in um, in when when you are not an opera singer, I mean, taking the acting out of it is like crazy. Opera singer, she just wasn't an opera performer, like as in in the acting sense. Like she would sing the arias, okay, but she wouldn't act. You know, she she didn't feel comfortable acting. Um, but Crazy. Which I, I find fascinating. But I will say one of the things that will like stick with me always that my uh, voice teacher in grad school, and I mean voice just in like voice of the performer, not singing, not anything. She said the yeah. most fearless people she has ever seen are opera singers. They have like no um, self-consciousness about the sounds that come out of their body because they have to explore everything in order to find what's right. Ooh. And so that is super interesting. That made I've me never think of, of heard of that. that. Yeah. That I've they, never thought about that. They have to make like, some really ugly sounds in order to find the pretty ones. Yes, they do. And they're singing with like their entire freaking body. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be super confident in the sound you're putting out, even if you aren't sure what it's going to be. Yes. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Wow. I hadn't really ever thought about that, but yeah. But I find that uh, inspiring in a weird way. Um, Yeah. Agreed. So she did record a ton of arias in the studio and they became bestsellers, but she never performed on the stage. um, Wow. Of opera. She did perform live, but (laughs) not in an opera. (laughs) Right. um, As an actor. So by the time she came back to America, she already was famous in Europe. So I think that kind of gave her a little more lift under her wings uh, because she had fame that preceded her. So she made a public debut at Carnegie Hall in 1935. Oh, wow. Um, The day before that performance, she was still in France before she flew back. She fell and she broke her ankle. (gasps) And she was still determined to make her fucking debut in America officially. I would be. So she performed the entire program standing on one foot, balancing against the piano with a floor length gown that covered her cast. Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) She must have wondered, like, if I like if I blow this chance, am I ever going to get it again? Am I ever going to get my break in my home country? Yeah, like, is Carnegie Hall going to reschedule? No. Like, exactly. it's just probably done. So exactly. I do this now or I don't do it at all. Right. So Ugh. it was obviously God. a resounding success. Um, it won her so much exposure and popularity that in 1936, she became the first black person to be invited to perform at the White House. 
my gosh. Wait, what year did you say? 1936. <laughs> oh my goodness. Person, Ugh. not black woman, black person. Person, period. And wow. She sang there a second time for it was Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, yep. yep. When they were entertaining the king and queen of Great Britain in 1939, they invited Marion to come sing again. So she performed multiple times. I wonder um, how much of that was Eleanor. Um, a lot, I'm sure. But, um, <laughs> because um, she does a lot for her in in, in this time period. Um, Ooh. And that's something that I'm going to sort of address. Something that I kind of uh, alluded to in a, in a conversation. I know when you did your episode about the Daughters of the Confederacy, I uh-huh. made an offhand comment about the Daughters of the American Revolution and how that was probably a cooler group. And I knew immediately when I said it, I was like, I'm probably fucking wrong on that. And, <laughs> and I think that that's, that's for the most part very true that I was fucking wrong on that. And um, we'll get there. Um, okay. <laughs> we're entering that now. Here we go. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Obviously, America in the 30s, still incredibly racist, like blatantly, openly, flagrantly racist. Um, yes. And so despite her global acclaim and despite the fact that she was the country's third highest concert box office draw. Oof. At the time, she was still obviously forced to ride in segregated train cars. And uh, perform for whites only audiences. Um, oh my she, God. Like all black Americans of the time, she was restricted to quote unquote colored waiting rooms and hotels. There was one instance in Los Angeles that she was allowed to stay in an upscale hotel, but she couldn't eat in their dining room. Uh, so allowed to stay. And not then allowed not to eat. allowed to fucking eat. Mm-hmm. As a guest. Yeah. Christ. Um, at one point, she ended up putting a clause in her contract that she would only play integrated venues. She didn't want to play whites only venues. Um, Good for her. But even so, there was one particular concert in Miami that the local police were a heavy and intimidating presence in the integrated concert venue. <laughs> She ultimately learned, and it's sad that she had to, uh, avoid these sort of affronts by staying with friends in the cities where she performed uh, and driving her own car instead of taking the train. Um, In 1937, when no hotel in Princeton would house her after her performance at the university, Albert Einstein, who had become a friend for life, invited her to stay with him. Oh, Albert. Oh, my God. And it was the first well, of many occasions that she would spend the night with the physicist and his wife at their home because he was obviously all for integration and educating the races as if they were equal because they fucking are. Yeah. Can you imagine being like one of those people at one of those venues or hotels who's like, um, I'm sorry, like, I know that you're super famous in Europe, but you can't stay here because of the color of your skin. And that's just, I don't make the rules. That's just what it is. And like, and she's realizing, super famous and super respected in a very white arena. That's the yes. crazy thing. Like, can you imagine being that person? And then I hopefully fucking years later, they live long enough to realize what a fucking 
mistake. Stupid idiot they were. Yeah. And what, yeah, what an asshole they were. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I hope so. I hope there are lots of people who have had that fucking revelation because that is, is obviously, she's not the one on the wrong side of history. Like, we're telling her story, but there are so many people who said to a person who had way more money than they did, Mm -hmm. way more fame than they did, way more lasting contributions to society and art and music than they did. And those people are still like, their legacy is saying, fuck you. They still want to to hold themselves in higher esteem just because purely of the color of their skin, which is bonkers. Um, God. When she performed in the South, actually, um, despite a general acceptance by the public, because, you know, there was even at the time this sort of notion of like, oh, well, you're one of the exceptional ones. You're famous, so it's probably you're more famous. Fine. You have money, you're classy, all these things that are just stupid and arbitrary and 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 horrific uh, to, to think are the reasons why you treat them a person with respect. Um, uh huh. In spite of their skin color. Um, yeah. The Southern newspapers, they couldn't bring themselves to refer to her as Miss Anderson. What? Because somehow that's deferential to, to call her Miss Anderson. What the? F- what did they call her? That's some sort of honorific. Um, uh, they called her Artist Anderson and Singer Anderson. Are you, are you fucking kidding me? That is the most... That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, to mm-hmm. be bending over backwards to find a way to, to make sure you tell your whole audience that you don't respect this person yeah. as much as you respect random white people on the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Bonkers. Right. That yeah. is fucking batshit. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. I know. It's I, I can't imagine what it must have been like for people like her and like Josephine Baker and the sort like knowing your worth and seeing the acclaim that you can get for the talent that you have and the skills that you have and still not even being able to eat in the dining room of your hotel. It, like, yeah. But but not wanting to. I, it's that sort. It's what you were saying last week about this sort of like learned resilience and and quiet strength that you have yeah. to have in order to maintain your success. Right. Yes. Which is a, the, <laughs> the amount of strength it takes to even just experience that, even with the success, is insane to me. Well, and especially because, like, you got your fame in a place and in a space where a lot of, like, black and white Americans don't achieve fame. And at yeah. the same time, like, that you've achieved that fame – you have earned the respect of white people, Europeans. You know, you've mm-hmm. been treated with respect by the audiences out there. And then you come back and, and you're faced with people. <laughs> like, and not deference. just respect. It's just like they, it's like, you, wow. Right. <laughs> and then you come back and you're faced with people who look just like the people you left, but they are treating you like you're dirt on their shoe. And I can't, I cannot even imagine that. I cannot. Yeah. And that's my privilege. The, the, compart- <laughs> the compartmentalization that it takes Ugh. is, is, 
beyond astounding. beyond my scope of understanding. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, in 1938, Eleanor Roosevelt presented her with the NAACP's Spingham Award for uh, the Black American who's made the highest achievement in any honorable field or endeavor. Okay. Which is like, that's a lot. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt was there to drape the medal around her neck. Clearly, she was a big fan. Um, And it was a moment captured by an unknown photographer who made it appear as if the two tall, beheaded women were mirror images. Ooh. In 1941. super cool. Yeah. I feel like that's like an art piece in and of itself. Um, Very smart. Yeah. Very smart photography. In 1941, she was granted um, the Edward Bach Award for Distinguished Service service to the City of Philadelphia. Um, and then obviously, in spite of all these awards and accolades that she was receiving, she was still um, struggling to be respected because she was a black woman. Um, oh, this sort of racism uh, kind of reached somewhat of a peak. I don't know. It definitely doesn't represent the end, but it reached a peak in 1939 when uh, Marion's manager uh, and Howard University tried to secure a performance for her at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C. The Daughters of the American Revolution owned that hall and they refused Uh. to accommodate her. Um, Like the rest of the nation's capital, Constitution Hall was segregated at the time. And uh, black audiences could sit in a small section of the balcony and did when a few black performers appeared in earlier years. But after one such singer refused to perform in a segregated auditorium, someone before Marion, the Daughters of the American Revolution decided that only whites could appear on their stage. Of course they did. Mm -hmm. Of course they did. One of the members of the DAR was Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh oh. <laughs> she, of course, was fucking outraged by this decision. And so she sent a letter of resignation and wrote about it in a column. And uh, she she said, quote, they have taken an action which has been widely criticized in the press to remain as a member implies approval of that action. And therefore, I'm resigning. Yay, Eleanor. <laughs> And she also said in that letter, quote, I'm in complete disagreement with the attitude taken in refusing Constitution Hall to a great artist. You had an opportunity to lead in an enlightened way. And it seems to me that your organization has failed. Ooh, did they respond? Uh, eventually, they let her sing there. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a yeah. good response. <laughs> um, but Amazingly, it it was a controversy that inspired the American press to overwhelmingly support Marian Anderson's right to sing. Okay. The Philadelphia Tribune wrote, quote, a group of tottering old ladies who don't know the difference between patriotism and putridism (laughs) have compelled the gracious first lady to apologize for their national rudeness. I love patriotism versus putridism. 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 Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's some fucking shade. The Richmond Times-Dispatch wrote, quote, In these days of racial intolerance so crudely expressed in the Third Reich, an action such as the DAR's ban seems all the more deplorable. Okay. Like, okay. I mean, I know that they were not alone <laughs> 
in their thinking or their actions. Obviously, we have talked about it myriad times, but I do appreciate that someone was willing to put that in print at that fucking time. And with and with the leadership of Eleanor Roosevelt being the yeah. first one to have the guts to fucking say it <sighs> and go, I don't condone this. And so I'm leaving this organization and fuck you and you're wrong yeah. and you could have been big and you are not. Bye. Right. And you guys are behind the times. I love that. Like, you're obviously on the wrong side of history. Or what did she say? You're unenlightened. That's so smart. Like, yeah. to, to make it clear that, like, history is not going to look fondly on this. And I don't want to be a part of that. Yeah, you have the opportunity to be progressive and forward thinking and not like the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That we vehemently Oof. oppose. But uh, you didn't. And that's uh, deplorable to me. Uh, yeah, to compare them to the, the Third Reich is very smart. It was very on the nose, too. Um, yep. So in response, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt helped to arrange for Marion to give her concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial as her auditorium. Oh, no, what a terrible second choice. <laughs> yeah, because 75,000 people showed up, <gasps> which is more than that auditorium could have handled. Um <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I like that. 75,000 people, I will say, of all races. (laughs) Of course. Um, Of course. So that concert took place on Easter Sunday in 1939. And the interior secretary, Harold Ix, introduced her. He introduced her by saying, quote, genius draws no color lines. White man. White man saying this. It was the largest gathering of people at... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this part of the Washington Mall since Lindbergh's reception in 1927. Damn. She began her concert with My Country Tis of Thee. My Country being America, obviously. Yeah. Which is a deeply patriotic song. Um, and when she got to the third line of that well-known tune, she made a change. Instead of Of Thee I Sing, she sang To Thee We Sing. Ooh. Marian Anderson was a quiet, humble person and often used we when speaking about herself, uh, like a royal we, I guess. Years after the concert, she explained why. Quote, we cannot live alone. And the thing that made this moment possible for you and me has been brought about by many people whom we will never know. Mm. Uh. Uh. God. So... Her change of lyric from I to we can be seen as an embrace, sort of implying community and group responsibility for progress. Um, Yeah. She was never really a civil rights activist, but she believed that prejudice would disappear if she performed and behaved with dignity. Which is, is also a quiet sort of strength of like, how do you do that in the face of what she encountered? But yeah. I mean, not all protest and not all activism is on the street with a sign or, or loud. you know, or loud. Not, or, to, not to say that that's not a right way to do it because it fucking is. Well, it that's absolutely like a, a powerful way to make progress. But like there are people who that's a it's not their path, but also it's not what they're good at. They don't know necessarily how to raise their voice in that way and make that you know, a, a thing that, that they 
um, can do and that they're heard. And you can make progress in so many small, what what might seem like insignificant ways, but are actually clearly Huge. massive ways. Yes. So 7,500 people at the she, Lincoln, 75,000? Wait, 7,500? 75,000. 75,000 people at the Lincoln Memorial to see her sing is a direct consequence of her and Eleanor Roosevelt's seemingly small action. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And she was 42 at the time. So she wasn't, oh. she wasn't, she, it's 1939. She was born in 1897. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, she kind of seemed to, when you look, when you watch videos of the occasion, and she was constantly nervous every time she sang, but um, she seemed to kind of feel the meaning, uh, the weight of the, the occasion. And she had tears in her eyes when she sang, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. Ugh. And America. She delivered those songs with heartbreaking pathos. It was a 25 minute long concert and it is viewed as one of the defining moments of the civil rights movement. Just I, her Oh my singing. God. 1939. I had yeah. no idea. I didn't either. <laughs> and I will send you at the end. I have clips for you to watch, but I will send you. Oh, good. Clips of her singing at that concert, too. Um, during- oh, no. <laughs> Does that mean I'm going to cry my eyes out? No, it's like one minute long. It should be just enough to get you to feel verklempt, but not send you over the edge. <laughs> okay. During World War II and the Korean War, she entertained troops in hospitals and at bases. But in 1943, she was finally invited to sing at Constitution Hall. Having been personally invited by the Daughters of the American Revolution to perform before an integrated audience as part of a benefit for the American Red Cross. Um, wow. <laughs> she said of the event, quote, when I finally walked onto the stage of Constitution Hall, I felt no different than I had in other halls. There was no sense of triumph. I felt that it was a beautiful concert hall and I was very happy to sing there. She's so good for her. Understated and humble. I fucking it's in, it oh, blows my mind. Um, I think I think, though, what's also really so um smart about that particular sentiment and expressing it that way is like it shouldn't be like any other concert hall it should not be that way like the fact that she didn't feel that that is the triumph true you know Mm -hmm. i think that is the 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 win is that she could treat it like any other concert she had ever done yeah and I just and would huge. like to point out that, uh, by contrast, the District of Columbia Board of Education continued to bar her from performing in other venues uh, in the District of Columbia. <laughs> well, we yep. know that they weren't super um, ahead of the times. Correct. Even though they felt like they were. Um, so it's probably implied, but uh, I would like to just state that by the mid-1940s, she had performed all over the globe. Um, she performed in France, in England, in Switzerland, in Scandinavia, obviously, Cuba, Brazil, <laughs> Venezuela, Colombia, El Salvador, Russia. At one point, she had 60 performances within seven months and was oh. traveling 20,000 to 30,000 miles every year in order to perform. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, oh, a, a that's key- an intense schedule. Yeah, no kidding. Very rigorous, I would think. Uh 
Yeah. A key moment in her career came in 1955 when she became the first black person to perform at the Met, the Metropolitan Opera. Okay. Um, she went on to sing at the inaugurations of two presidents, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy Jr. She was the first black woman to do so. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, she was named both a goodwill ambassador for the U.S. State Department and a delegate to the U.N. God, amazing. And she was awarded 24, 24 honorary doctorates. <laughs> what? I did not expect the word doctorates to come out of your mouth. Uh-huh. Doctorates? Yeah. So she was Dr. Marian Anderson. <laughs> Holy shit. What? <laughs> Um, That's okay. I'm amazed by that. That's awesome. And in 1963, President Lyndon Johnson awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Freedom. Amazing. Um, I'm stumbling over my words because I'm just too excited, I guess. Um, Uh, Well, it's a lot. It's great. In 1965, she gave her final official performance at Carnegie Hall in New York. And afterward, uh, she settled down with her husband, who I haven't mentioned, um, but that happened in the 40s. Um, she married Orpheus Fisher, and they settled down on a farm in Connecticut. She would have been in her late 60s at the time. Um, and Also, his name is amazing. Yeah, Orpheus Fisher. Mm-hmm. Orf- he's an architect. His name was Orpheus H. King Fisher. Holy they- shit. He is a Greek myth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was literally just reading about Kingfishers earlier and how they were halcyon, halcyons in in Greek mythology, which was, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to go into that. But anyway, Greek mythology. Yeah. He's So he's he's an architect. They got married in 1943 in Connecticut. Apparently, they knew each other as kids, and he first asked her to marry him when they were teenagers, but that didn't happen. Oh, I don't know the well, exact details, but it didn't happen. She was busy. She was paying for yeah, her I was family. Say, she had a lot on her plate. Like, yeah. I don't know why she would think I'm going to marry some guy and then but be they, his housewife. In now. 1943, she would have been in her mid 40s. So it's not yeah. like she got married young. She got married in her 40s, which is really Man. cool to me. Um, and that he waited <laughs> that yeah. long. Yeah. Oh. Well, he got he had a previous marriage, apparently. I'm not sure how it ended, but she had a stepson. Oh, okay. Um, okay. She married him. So um, fair enough. He had a previous marriage. Um, they had a hundred acre farm in Danbury, Connecticut. <gasps> um, oh, my dream. And they had an exhaustive search throughout New York, New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, because he was an architect throughout the years, he had built many structures on their property, including an acoustic rehearsal studio that he designed for his wife. Um, oh, the property. Awesome. The property remained their home for almost 50 years and her studio was eventually moved to downtown Danbury and is now known as the Marian Anderson Studio. Oh. And while she lived as a resident of Connecticut, she kind of didn't want to be a celebrity anymore. She wanted to be treated just like a normal person. She declined offers all the time to be treated as a celebrity when she went to restaurants and stores. She just didn't want it anymore. She would go to the Danbury State Fair. She sang at the City Hall on the occasion of the lighting of the Christmas ornaments, just like a local singer would. Oh. Um, She gave a concert at Danbury High School. Uh, She served on the boards of the Danbury Music Center, supported the Charles Ives Center for the Arts and Danbury Chapter of the NAACP. 
She had a garden that wow. she loved to tend. She cavorted with her dogs and they have all this on camera because there, she she loved taking pictures. She reupholstered furniture. She made clothing because she was also really good with a sewing machine because she brought a camera with her on every tour. She developed prints. She had her own dark room. So she was like a very Renaissance woman type of person and, and just had the opportunity to settle down and just live a quiet life. Um, oh, her, her husband amazing. died in 1986. Uh, they had been married for 43 years. Uh, mm. She she remained in residence at their farm until 1992, which was one year before her death. Um, she died of congestive heart failure in 1993 at the age of 96. Damn. Um, the following lady lived a long time. <laughs> yeah. The following June. So she died in April. And in June, a memorial service was attended by 2000 admirers and they paid tribute to the singer whose beautiful voice exposed the country's ugly racial divisions. Um, she had once been barred from performing in the nation's capital and had been forced to use the back entrance at upscale hotels and became an American musical icon. Oh, damn. Yeah. She lived quite a life, I have to say. Um, that was awesome, though. I guess I I thought I would recognize her and her contributions, but I don't think I I don't think I knew about her. Like the name was super familiar, but uh, yeah, I, that's the same with me. I knew her name. I'd I'd seen her image. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know anything about her. Here you go. This is the Lincoln Memorial opening. All those people. And so it is fitting that Marian Anderson should raise her voice in tribute to the noble Lincoln whom mankind will ever honor. Miss Marian Anderson. She looks so nervous. I'm getting chills. <laughs> there it is. There it is. I just don't know why it has so much more meaning when a black woman whose grandfather was a slave talks about like the land where my fathers died and then let freedom ring. Like it just means so much more. I'm going to fucking cry. Like it's just. And not and and singing it in front of the giant marble Lincoln. (laughs) Which, you know, is of course, it's like. History will ever honor. It's like, yeah, he freed the slaves, but he also then said that, like, it wasn't his business to decide who, like, if if people were equal. And he did say that if he felt more comfortable saying white was the superior race, but that's fine. He freed yeah. the slaves, you know. Lincoln was not the <laughs> the like paragon of of uh, equal justice and civil rights that we believe him to be, but he, like. 
he was the he president. He did free the slaves. Who he freed did free the slaves. slaves. So and that's, so that's yeah. Not so that's definitely not. So nothing. to have that, no. But I I agree with you. Like we we think that um, that his reasons for doing that are kind of meaningless, and they are not right. because his reasons for doing it, I think, helped to dictate a lot of why we failed at um, really <laughs> like making the the freedom of slaves mean something after the fact yeah anyway that's a tangent but seeing her singing in front of that memorial is like kind of crazy and you can just see how much she feels it Mm -hmm. on her face like Mm -hmm. the the expressions and the way like she's leaning into it with her whole body but yeah hearing it like that her the low register versus the soprano she was using in the Ave in Maria the previous, and shit. Yeah. That's crazy. She sounds like a different person. And at the same time, it still sounds like her. Exactly. That's insane. I, I don't I, even I don't understand think that. There's enough respect frequently for female singers who can sing extremely low. Um, I think no. a lot of yeah. times we're very impressed when people can sing really high and mm-hmm. she can do both. And that I, but there's something Ugh. so rich and like warm to these contralto low women singers that is like unmatched to me. I don't know. It's like when you hear a no. really good bass yeah. singer, that's like a male bass singer. It's like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> People are too hung up on belting and they're not hung up enough on on how beautiful and how it just like can hit and reverberate in your chest when you hear a singer who can sing beautifully in a low Mm -hmm. register. I don't know. Yes. Oh, God. It's funny. My mom and I were talking about that exact thing last night. For a (laughs) dumb reason, we were watching Eurovision, (laughs) which is a very different... um, uh, kind of content, but but we were talking about like the note, some of the notes that she hits, and like where she's singing them in her body, mm-hmm. and we were and we ended up talking about the the voice, the show, and how they basically prioritize people who belt exclusively, and and that's like the whole thing now that they like, and that that's not all singing is. And that some of the most beautiful singers and some uh, of the most skilled all over and rare born talent. Like some people cannot hit those low notes, period. Not even yeah. if they tried. Yeah. I yep. oh, I don't know. I yep. think I, I was researching and watching videos of like other known contralto opera singers and trying to hit the notes they were hitting. And I am an alto. I sing low. But there was so I was like like it sounded so stupid and i was like these women are amazing i love them so much oh my god but it's so it's so true though it's like we take for granted i think a lot of people especially who who have never um done any singing in their life would probably watch a video or multiple videos of her and take for granted what she's doing but um it's amazing and she was so it's it's an it's it's 
really heartwarming to me and then depressing to think that it's not the norm of the time. But she was on, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a show from Black and White TV called What's My Line? Oh, uh, yeah. It's it was a panel. I for never people, watched for it. People who, it's but. really good. It's actually a really good show and very enjoyable in a modern context, too. But it's oh, for shit. people who aren't familiar. It's a show where you have a panel of not judges, but just a panel of people who would look at someone and through asking yes or no questions, try and guess what their occupation was. Oh. And, and there was always, <laughs> at least at least from what I've seen, there was a celebrity guest at the end. So the panel would be blindfolded and they had to try and guess who the celebrity guest was. And she oh, was on What's My Line, Marian Anderson was, and they couldn't guess because they they... They figured out she was in the entertainment industry. But so they were like, are you known for being in the pictures? And she's like, nope. And it's like, are you known for the theater? Nope. Are you known for the ballet? Nope. Are you known for primarily your records? Primarily oh. being the keyword. She was like, no, because she's known primarily <laughs> for live performance, not for right. her, even though her records did so well. She's primarily known for live performance. And they ra- oh you only God. they only have 10 questions until they're they run out of chances to figure out who sh- who it was. And one of the judges oh. who was a white woman, the, the panel was all white. She absolutely lost her mind and fangirled. And she was like, oh, my God, I was just reading a New York Times article about you this morning. You're amazing. I am such a fan. Oh, my God. And and they it, and it's just so interesting to me to watch because I know that at the time in the late 50s, early 60s, I think it was the mid 60s, actually, when she was on What's My Line. But she uh, uh, was so revered by these white, rich people. And and but then it's also like, but that wasn't normal because, again, it was like that same mentality of, oh, but you're one of the exceptional ones. I don't know. Right. Well, they probably didn't even see her as black black because they were looking her at her as a celebrity, Mm -hmm. as a as a woman with X talents and a woman with with clout. Yeah. It, yeah, there are certain things that white people, white audiences are willing to forgive mm-hmm. um, if there are other things that you are known for. Um, and I'm sure that was really part of it for a lot of people. But I, I felt very um, happy for her that in spite of all mm-hmm. the indignity that she had to go through, that she yeah. was well respected by white American people who lost their minds when they met her and were like, Oh, Marian Anderson. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) And that even beyond that, that she was able to settle down with her husband on a farm and sing at the Christmas tree lighting or whatever it was that you said. Yes, that was (laughs) what I said. And at the high school. And have, yeah, and have like this, this normal life. After singing to 75,000 people at the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, I like I'm almost more impressed with and happy for her that she was able to have that once she became a quote normal person. Yeah, she chose you to know? and then they let her do it. Yeah, because that could have been I mean, that's when you hear about people having the most trouble mm-hmm. is when they fall out of the limelight and people start to treat them like fucking shit. But and it's almost like she decided like I've had enough of this. And people were like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm really glad that she didn't have to do too much of that. I guess I don't know from her personal experience, um, but it sounds like she had a, a good end of life, and I'm I that's really what it glad seems for like, that. That you know, yeah. she she was a local uh, pillar. She participated in 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 organizations, and she loved to garden and be with her dogs and develop pictures <sighs> in her dark room and she still had her studio if she wanted to go sing honestly that's the dream for me <laughs> truly my retirement <laughs> dream does she last uh. performed at carnegie hall her last official performance was in 1965 so she would have been 67 or 68 and yeah. um then she was like and i'm done yeah retiring i did age. what i wanted to do yeah Oh, how lovely. <laughs> but she's like so inspiring to me for for so many reasons, like not just because the adversity she overcame, but the, the fact that her peak of fame, so it would seem, was in middle age. Mm hmm. And and in live performance. Yeah. I don't Which know. Which is like I just love so her. amazing. Yeah, that's uh, that is an incredible story. And I'm I'm bummed at uh, at one end that we don't learn it you know but that's true of a lot of the people that we talk about mm -hmm. most of the people that we talk about um and i am really excited at the other end that she despite the things that she encountered in the u.s still was able to live a a life that she loved and was proud of at the end like honestly and i think that this is is a big indicator of my white privilege showing but honestly i think if i was a kid and i was trying to study acting because that's what i was doing at the time and someone was like yep. we don't take white people i probably would have been like okay it's hopeless goodbye <laughs> yeah it's uh, just i am in awe of her tenacity and 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 the fact that she never gave up and that she proved consistently over and over that she was worth the time and effort and and education and i uh, anyway uh anyway Dude. I've, I've had my I've, i'm on my second drink and i don't drink anymore so i'm just like uh. gushing <laughs> well okay i will cut you off then uh but thank you <laughs> <laughs> what are you excited about this week hannah um, is it like, is it too much of a cop out to say that I'm excited about a lot of things I can't talk about? <laughs> no. I mean, okay. you've kind of talked to me about them in private, but you can't talk about them in public. Oh, I can't talk about them in public. Because you're but... like a badass and you're in the publishing industry oh. and like you've got really cool stuff going on. And, and Thanks. Like... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm excited that a lot of um, projects that have been in the works for a long time for my clients are finally coming to fruition in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, there I, I've had some clients who ha signed with me in 2016 whose like first books we shopped and shopped and shopped and then finally now we are seeing like big rewards on their subsequent books and you know, it's like that's a round of applause. I was going around. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited about about some of those things. And I'm also excited about new clients who I'm um, really lucky to have signed recently. And um, just like I think that 
I'm having a good publishing You're time. You're excited about and career moves. About career moves. About seeing uh, the fruits of your labor. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. And, um, you know, I feel like that might be a good segue into the fact that I have asked you if we can take a short break. A a break. I guess I will say a break. I don't know how long it will be. I can't put a, a time on it. But um, there are some things that... You know, Ben and I have to explore in terms of where we want to live, where we want to fucking live, um, and some career things that I have to spend a little bit more time on, and um, that means that... It'll make you less available for research. (laughs) That's right. And, I mean, my hope is that at the end of that period, like you and I can just come back and do things like normal because this podcast is one of my lifelines. And I have so many people that I want to tell you about. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's my hope and my goal. And um, in the meantime, the next couple of months are going to be a little bit hectic. Mm -hmm. So we got to just dedicate some time to that. And I know that you and I have been a little bit more sporadic this year because of COVID and because you and I have both moved. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, I'm really grateful for all of the people who have continued to listen during that time. Oh you know, God. you guys, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you um, you make this podcast go round. I don't know. You make the world go round. Mm-hmm. Um you make things work and we really appreciate you and i just really hope that you will be here when we come back yeah you'll, you'll keep an eye out for us on this journey with us even though we may be taking a petite break yeah and and yeah. who knows and 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 not to get hopes up because it's really going to be a super open-ended thing but there may be the occasional week where i reach out to Hannah and have someone that i have had the time to research and if she right. has time to listen we might do that or vice versa but we just don't know right now yeah Um, so keep your eyes out because obviously every now and then i think you and i will get the energy i really do mm -hmm. think that and that we'll do it and it's definitely not um, the end because again as you said this podcast is like a safe haven for us to be able to express and 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 (laughs) vent about the world and and learn cool new things and get to spend time with each other which is something that we previously said means a lot yes and i think i'm a better person for having done this yes too in a lot of ways and so that's not something i'm going to be too quick to give up yeah um so i still think we should get commemorative tattoos i fucking agree (laughs) Oh God! Especially because like one of one of the hiatus projects is potentially going to be moving, and so you know if we do that, well. I know I'm very sorry, but if we plan to do that, then you and I need to go get some tattoos. <laughs> I think that that's awesome that you're excited about all the shifts and and things that life is going to throw at you, and the cool stuff that you've been working hard for finally starting to see some reward. And so I think Thank that's you a very great much. thing to be excited about. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Um, and, in the meantime, uh, yeah. you can find us on social media. Please keep in touch. Reach out. Uh, we Tell us about here. cool ladies you like. Yeah. Add to our list. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're at GWBB Podcast on pretty much every place that has social media. Uh, not Parlor though, because obviously. Um, Does Parlor exist even I don't think, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't have a server anymore, does it? So I guess that was a really (laughs) stupid joke to make. Um, It's all, it's all good. If Parlor exists by the time this comes out, don't look for us there. We won't be there. We won't be there. (laughs) And we will never be there. Never. Because we don't want to give our social security numbers and driver's licenses because that's what they require. I don't want to be ripe for identity theft. Mm-mm. Sorry, guys. No one who listens to this podcast is going to look for us on Parlor. This is uh, That's getting true. absurd. They would have. They would have. Yeah. They would have turned off uh, uh, within the first couple of uh, seconds. Here. Yes. They would have been like, "Oh, oh, two feminine voices speaking in my. Oh God, Ugh. I can't stand it. Gross. Bye. Ew." Ew. Uh, for those of you who are still here, thank yeah. you for being here. And we look forward to seeing your tweets and uh, Instagram comments and messages, etc. And also your emails, because we are at, uh, we're gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. So, you know, come find us and say hello and let us know that uh, you're still listening and interested. And we'll come back hopefully soon with some new stuff. Yeah. 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 And in the meantime, um, keep this episode close to your heart because I think this is a great one to like have a short break on. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. It's super good. <laughs> I freaking loved it. And I hope you guys did too. So we'll see you soon. And in the meantime, peace out, witches. Bye. We love you. We love you. listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. (laughs) Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com we love to receive emails if you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air uh, shoot it over to us we would love to read it if you want to help keep us running you can find us on patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast <laughs> become a patron and help us you know pay for our hosting yeah patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content and it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast and it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out if you like it you can be a part of it also to help us out you can rate review and subscribe all of the all of those things are extremely helpful for us they help other listeners find us yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.